0: Yeah, that I can give voice to people who have been erased. Because before, one of my major motivations was writing about people in the present who could be members of my family or members of my community who have been silenced. That was really important to me earlier on in my career as a writer. And it's still important to me. But now I feel like my understanding of what it means to be silenced and of what it means to be erased has expanded to include not just my community and my family in the present, but also all of the people, all of my ancestors, all of my forefathers and foremothers and four folks who came before me who
1: were erased or silenced. That was today's podcast guest, Jasmine Ward professor of creative writing at Tulane University and award-winning author. Hi, I'm Celeste Headley, and you're listening to Women Amplified. So it's the end of the year. We hope that means you're taking the time to slow down and get the rest that you really deserve after a busy fall season. After hosting three big two-day conferences in three months, we're planning to get some real rest ourselves and recover. But we wanted to offer you some of our favorite recent episodes to help keep you company while you're recharging for 2023. In the chaos of life and work and to-do lists, it can be easy to forget about the importance of art. But this conversation with two-time National Book Award winner Jasmine Ward will leave your soul more satisfied than an empty inbox. let's talk a little bit about the work. And I interviewed you once before about your memoir, the only memoir you have called Mm -hmm. Men We Reaped, which tells the story of the deaths of five men Mm -hmm. beginning in 2000 when your brother Joshua was killed.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And you have said that in order to write the book, you had to learn how to love the men less in order to write about them truthfully. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I wonder whether that's also true when you're not writing nonfiction, With other characters, do you also have to go through this process of learning to love the characters less? Mm. Yes. But it's been a few years since
0: we had that conversation. So maybe I would phrase it differently now. It's not that I loved or love the people that I write about less. It's that I have to realize that if I am going to write about the people that I come from and the place that I come from, and if I'm going to be honest and truthful about the realities of that community and of that place, then there's something that I like to call narrative ruthlessness. I have to have a certain amount of narrative ruthlessness. I have to realize that I can't spare the people that I write about because I love them, because life doesn't spare them, life doesn't spare us. And because I've taken on this responsibility of writing about the people that I write about, I have to be truthful and I have to not separate myself from my character's But I guess acknowledge the fact that I can still love them. I can love my fictional characters. I can love the people that I know and that I write about. And I can treat them with a certain amount of respect and tenderness and care. But at the same time that I do all that, I must be honest about the realities of the lives that they lead. And so I guess it's just, I think that the way that I approach it is is that I... I have to tell myself over and over again, like I have to remind myself of that fact, right? That I have to be honest. I have to be truthful. I have to, I have to write about difficult things in an honest manner. And I have to avoid that impulse that I might feel because I do love my characters so much to spare them and to prettify what the people that I love and the characters that I love are going through.
1: Well, you have returned to your fictional community, mm-hmm. but it's based on the small town that yep. you're from. And I don't mean small town like Macon, Georgia. I mean yeah. I looked it up in the 2010 sentence, it had eleven hundred and forty-seven people. Yeah, it's tiny. Like, it is tiny. Yep. So do the people of your town read your books and they then have things to say about the way you've sort of portrayed your hometown? They do.
0: There's something that you should know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I come from a very large
0: family on both sides, right? right? And so I'm probably related to half the people in the town. You're counting like my mom's people and my dad's people, like I'm probably related to half the people in the town. And so I think that they read my work, right? So to them, like I'm not just this local girl who has done well for little, herself. Tiny Town
1: for those who don't know, tiny little town in uh southern Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. Lea, De
0: Lille. De Lille. right So like for them, I'm not just like the local girl who has done good. Like I'm their little cousin or their little niece or, you know what I'm saying? Like that's how they perceive me. So yes, they do. They come to all my events. They read my books. They're always very excited when they come out. They buy or sometimes they'll come to me for copies. So I end up giving them my author's copies (laughs) often, but they'll get copies of the book and they'll give those copies to friends or relatives that they might have who don't live in southern Mississippi in my little small town. And so there's a lot of that. Like I feel a lot of love and a lot of support from the people in my family and the people In my community, in my career. But at the same time, especially with Men We Reaped, I think that it was difficult for some people in my community and for some people in my family too. It was difficult for them to read that book and to wrestle with that material because I was writing about us, you know, like I was writing about my brother and my cousins and my friends, right? And being very honest about the circumstances of our lives and how we were living. And some of it was very ugly, right? I mean, there was mental illness, there was drug use, there were a lot of, infidelity, you know. Right, yeah. infidelity, right? I mean, I mean, a lot of really sort of tough subject matter that I was writing about. First of all, like if you're being portrayed in something, in some sort of fictional piece of work, you want, I mean, most of the time, it's just like a natural human instinct, I think. You want to be portrayed in a good light. You don't want all these sort of uglier, characteristics or uglier events in your lives like you don't want to see that reflected back at yeah or, or other people exactly and so i think that that was difficult for people and two, i think that it was difficult because i was writing about these young men who i'd grown up with and who i loved and being very truthful about how they were living and how we were living and i think that especially when young people die unexpectedly that in many communities and families, right, the immediate response is to make them into angels. Yeah. Right? And that's just natural, right? You want to make this person who you've lost, who you love very much, you want to make them into an angel. You want to make them, to, you know, you say things like, oh, I know they're watching over me right now. And, and then when you think, when you reflect back on their lives and when you tell stories about their lives, right, the default is, is that you only tell the good stories. And... I wasn't doing that. And so people in my family and in my community who found that really problematic. And the way that I dealt with that is that. Cause that's right when you moved
1: around the time that you moved back.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way that I dealt with that is I mean, I had a couple conversations with people about it who found it problematic. I don't know how much good it did. I don't think that it did, that it, I was able to change their minds. I tried to communicate why i chosen to write the book. And part of the reason that I wrote that book is because I believe that in telling our stories and all their awful, lovely messiness, that several things would happen, right? That one, telling our stories would show that we exist, or that, you know, in the case of my brother and my cousin and my friends, or that they existed, they were here, they lived, right? And that our lives and their lives, they have value. And Both sides of my family, I mean, I grew up in poverty, right? And so I think that I wanted to make sort of statements about that, right? I wanted people to see how growing up in that type of environment, growing up in poverty and as a Black person and in the rural South, like how that constrains your existence in certain ways, right? And because you never see people like us or back then, you never saw people like us in pop culture, like portrayed in pop culture or living Complicated lives on, in television or in literature, I wanted us to exist, and I wanted us to be able to speak and to have voice and to have agency, right and to assert that we are here and that we shouldn't be confined to people's ideas about us. right? But instead, we should be able to speak and to tell our stories and to show that our lives are just as complicated and just as complex and just as unique. As everyone else's.
1: It's interesting though, because you have, not in the memoir, but especially in Sing Unmarried, Sing and a couple other ones, you have this really sort of gripping and gritty reality. Mm -hmm. As you say, unsparing. Mm -hmm. And then you insert magic into it, Mm -hmm. right? There's these kids who can not just see ghosts Mm -hmm. as the little girl Mm can. Kayla can hear the ghosts, but Jojo can talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder... Why insert the element of magic into mm-hmm. this very realistic story, which is, I, mean, I think people keep calling it a road trip, which mm-hmm. is odd, but this road <laughs> trip to a prison and back. I'd always
0: wanted to write something with magical realism in it. When I started Seeing and the Married Sing, I thought that it was a road trip. I thought, oh, this is, a, this is a novel about a journey. And this is a, a novel that will take place in the modern South and modern Mississippi, Right. And so as these characters are sort of traveling through the state, I thought, well, they'll be able to encounter people and encounter places that, that sort of encapsulate like what the South is, like what this new South, this new Mississippi is. And of course, the new Mississippi, so much of the new, new Mississippi is influenced and dependent on the past, right? And yeah, the old Mississippi, right? The past lives in the present. But at first I thought I was just writing a novel about a road trip, but I thought, I'd always wanted to write something that had magical realism in it, in part because I so admired writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right, who used magical realism in their work to talk about very, or to write about very difficult subject matter. And to give that subject matter, it becomes more complicated. It allows you to add some sense of, I don't know, of complication to it. It allows you to communicate to the reader That there are things that we don't understand about this world, you know, and there are things that exist beyond what we see or hear or feel or touch, right? So I grew up hearing ghost stories. I grew up hearing stories about my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who was born with what they call a call over her face, Mm -hmm. right? And so that meant that she has vision, right? Mm-hmm. That she has, I don't no, know. Supposedly. Yeah. Supposedly. The call. Yeah. Have right. right. Side. Have, yeah. yeah Have other sight, Right. So I grew up hearing those stories. I grew up hearing stories from my paternal great grandmother about how her husband just showed up, her deceased husband showed up one night and had a whole conversation with her. So like these are the kinds of stories that I grew up hearing. And so I thought, well, it would be interesting to because I love magical realism so much and because I've always wanted to write it, like this seems like this is an aspect of the community and the culture that I've grown up in. haunted. Yeah. So I thought I want to incorporate this into this novel, like this road trip. And so at first I thought, well, I'll just have Ma'am and Jojo, they'll have access to this site, right? This way of like seeing the world, seeing beyond the world, right? The
1: grandmother and grandson. Right,
0: grandmother and grandson. But then when I began to research Parchment Prison, which is where they were heading to, because I didn't know anything about Parchment Prison, and I found out that children like Richie, who is one of the two ghosts in the novel, right? So Richie is 12 years old, I think, Yeah, he's a kid, and he was charged with... He stole something when he was a kid, and he was charged with theft, and then his punishment was being sent to Parchment Prison, where he was basically re-enslaved because Parchment Prison was a plantation. It's a working plantation in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, right? So he was sent to Parchment Prison, right? A child, 12 years old. And when I learned that kids like him existed, I thought, I have to write about this kid. He has to be a part of this novel. But I wanted to give him agency. I wanted him to be able to act and react and speak. And I wanted to give him voice. And so because I wanted him, I wanted to give him all these things that a child like him had been denied in life. Right. And so in order to do that, I realized the only way I could do that was by making him a ghost because I wanted him to have conversations with JoJo. I wanted him to be able to like live and move and make things happen in the present. And so I thought he has to be a ghost. Like I have to write about this kid, but I don't want to write about him in a flashback. I want him to live in the present. And so. He became a ghost and I realized I was not only writing a road trip, but I was also writing a ghost story, which I hadn't planned on doing, but which I felt compelled to do. Because again, like I grew up in Mississippi, I took Mississippi history. My whole, I had gone 30 years without knowing that children like him existed. And so it made me really, I think, angry and also it was really painful for me to find out about him. And the children like him because I realized that their lives and that their suffering had been erased. And I wanted to do what I could do with my itty bitty platform, <laughs> you know, that won the 2018 <laughs> National Book Award to reach back in the past and pull him into the present, into the public consciousness for the people who would read. My work, and I feel like as I develop as a writer and as I grow as a writer, because I'm always trying to push myself and to grow. And so I feel like as I develop as a writer, as I grow as a writer, that that has become one of my sort of motivations in writing. Right? Is to go to the past and find people like that. You that know? You can give voice. Yeah, that I can give voice to people who have been erased. Because before, one of my major motivations was writing about people in the present. Who could be members of my family or members of my community who have been silenced? That was really important to me earlier on in my career as a writer. And it's still important to me. But now I feel like my understanding of what it means to be silenced and of what it means to be erased has expanded to include not just my community and my family in the present, but also all of the people, all of my ancestors, all of my forefathers and foremothers and forefolks. Who came before me who were erased or silenced. So I find myself looking to the past for a lot of my motivation now.
1: Jasmine, you've given us a lot to think about. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. Build an easy win into the first quarter of 2023. Registration is now open for the California Conference for Women. It's the nation's largest event of its kind. This Women's History Month, we're offering a two-day event with in-person and virtual programs. Join us on March 1st as we gather in person at the Santa Clara Convention Center for Networking, fun and a keynote program featuring Constance Wu, Kelly Corrigan, and more speakers still to be announced. Or you can join us from anywhere on March 2nd for a full-day virtual conference. You'll get to hear from Misty Copeland, Naomi Osaka, Ginny Romady, and a dozen truly outstanding breakout session speakers. All in-person tickets include access to the virtual conference or You can purchase a virtual-only ticket if you'd prefer. Learn more at caconferenceforwomen.org slash conference. And we're back with New York Times bestselling author Jesmyn Ward. In the first part of today's episode, we dove right into some important and powerful messages about amplifying our voices. Now we'll shift to a lighter place and focus on the process side of writing. Okay, so... Let's start with you as a, not just an author, but as a cottage industry, right? The transition that occurred at one point to where you were at one point a writer and writing is fairly solitary, and then you became a businesswoman. When did that happen and how did it go? I feel like it's still ongoing. I think that I'm still
0: attempting or still trying, working on figuring everything out. I think that earlier on in a writer's career, you have to begin to learn how to cultivate like a public persona. I mean, I guess, yeah, branding. I guess that's how people would talk about it. Like they'd say, oh, you have to have a brand. So you begin to figure out the fact that you have to have one. I don't think that when I was a beginning writer that I knew that I had to have a public face in a way of, I don't know, of talking to people and just talking points, right? That revolve around the kind of work that I do and the kind of writing that I do. And so I had to learn how to brand myself, how to, I had to figure out what I was going to say, like how I was going to present myself to the world. What were the issues that were most important to me and commit to using every opportunity that I had to talk about them, I guess. Was Um, it hard to accept that you had to do Yes, it was. Because like you said, like as a writer, when we're like baby writers, we think, I love writing. I love reading. I'm going to sit in this room by myself and I'm going to create this thing And then it's going to go out into the world, but without me, you know, it's going to go out into the world as this product of its own and it's going to find readers, right? The publishing company is going to make sure for people who don't self-publish, the publishing company is going to make sure that this book finds readers, but that's not the way that it works. And so pretty quickly, you know, when your first book is published, you realize that this is a business and that in effect, like you are in a sense becoming i guess a business. So i don't know it's interesting for me because i feel like i'm still in a transitional phase right now because my career is still growing. So therefore the money that i bring in, the money that goes out, like my thinking around like how i'm going to invest the money that i have, how hopefully it will grow. Like i'm also begin thinking about like like i have kids and thinking about estates and thinking about my legacy and, and what causes, you know, am i going to Contribute to, right? So like all of this, it still feels very new to me. And for me, like for the writers, it's different. Some writers, it happens all at once. They have this breakout, amazing book, right? right. And they become a household name, right? But for me, that hasn't necessarily happened. Like it's, I'll win the National Book Award yeah. and I'll get some recognition.
1: Which you 2011 National Book Award for Salvaged (laughs) Bones.
0: Okay. Yes. Yes. And then 2018 for Sing and Be Sing, right? So for me, it's sort of my success has come in stages. And it's something that I still feel like,
1: I don't know, I still feel like there's more work for me to do. Let's talk then about the process that still is just writing. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, let me take a step back. Do you think, because you also teach. Yes. Do you think... We need to have young writers who are in writing programs learn these things about business, how to read a contract, how to pay taxes. Do they need to learn that stuff in addition to the craft?
0: I think so. I think it would be really helpful if young writers in MFA programs, especially if they had access to classes that were all about the business of writing, because that's something that I had to figure out. And like I said, I'm still figuring it out, but that's something that I had to begin to figure out. Based on conversations that I was just having with my friends, right, who were a bit further along in their careers than I was at that point when I was studying at the University of Michigan, you know, studying go for my them. MFA. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, that's something that I began to figure out then, right? Oh, you're going to need an accountant. If you sell your book, you're going to get this really big book advance, right? But it comes in stages, exactly. Exactly, it's a
1: loan against future sales, exactly. And I didn't know any of that. Big check, right? Right.
0: And then you don't, (laughs) you know, you don't realize like how much of it that you should set aside to pay the government in taxes, and I mean, just all these like. There's so much there that you just sort of learn in this really haphazard way. Because I think even when I was talking with my peers and and people, like I said, whose careers were a little bit further along mine was at the time, like they didn't know that I didn't know all these things. Right. So we're sharing information, but they shared this piece of information, but I won't hear the rest of it. You know what I'm saying? So like it's been very difficult to figure out exactly how to go about developing and supporting my career as a writer, as a professional writer. So yes, I think that it would be really useful for MFA students, beginning writers who have not sold a book, who know next to nothing about publishing industry to have that opportunity to learn about the business of the industry. And I even, I feel like I had a very tiny leg up on my peers because I worked in publishing in New York City at Random House for two years. But even then, even with that background, I still didn't know
1: (laughs) all of what I really needed to know. So tell me about this part that is still just writing. Like where do you have a certain place that you always go to to write? Yeah, I wish I
0: were more like some of my friends who are writers who can work in public places, you know, who go to cafes and they go to coffee shops and, or bookstores and I can't. Too distracting. It's too distracting. I have to work in a quiet space. I can work while I'm traveling as long as I'm like working in my hotel room. But when I'm at home... There's a room that I've set aside. It's not really a proper library, but it is a room with a ton of books. So I call it my library. It's very tiny and I've already run out of space in it (laughs) because I have a problem with buying books. But I go there. That's where I have my desk. And usually I'll work there and everything has to be quiet. Some of my friends who are writers can work to music. You know, they'll have whole playlists for the books that they are, you know, whatever book they're working on for that time, they'll have devised a playlist and it helps them to listen to music. But I can't do it because I have to hear the rhythm of the sentences. And the the rhythm of the paragraphs and the rhythm of the dialogue. Most of the rhythm of the music would interfere. It interferes, yeah. Because I tried at one point. I thought, well, maybe you know, my friends are writing like this. I want to write to music, and so I tried, but it was too difficult for me. It was too distracting. I couldn't hear what was happening on the page. Is there a window? There is a window right in front of my. So I have my desk set up right in front of my window. So sometimes I look up. And I'll look out my window for a second. But if I'm in a really good groove, like I write five days a week, right? So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. How yeah. long can you sustain on a day? At least two hours. It depends on where I am in a project. If I'm in a good space on a project, then I can go up to four hours. That's, That's a long hard. time Yeah, to focus. It is a long time. I mean, I'll ta- like I said, I'll take little breaks where I'll look up. But, and then sometimes too, if I'm working for four hours, I'm continuously working on like little small Projects, so, you know. Yeah, like you do a lot of stuff. Articles and, and yeah. And short stories. Yeah. So I'll dedicate the first two hours to my novel in progress and then the second two hours to whatever article I'm working on
1: or. A morning writer or an evening writer?
0: Now, when I was younger, I was definitely an evening writer because I am a night owl. Like that naturally, those with my circadian rhythm, like I just, I wake up late and I stay up late now because I'm a mom. (laughs) Funny how that happens. Yeah, Because I'm a mom, I am no longer, well, I still have night owl tendencies, but because I have to get up so early in the morning to get my kids together to get them ready for school and get them off to school, I now work because I drop them off at eight and then I go back home and so I'm working by 8.30.
1: I think many of us can relate to that juggling act with kids, life and work and how to fit it all in. Jasmine Ward? Her latest book is Navigate Your Stars, but frankly, enter her oeuvre at any point and you are going to enjoy what you read. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Women Amplified from the Conferences for Women. Thank you so much for listening. Be kind and be well.